0: From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron, the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki.
1: Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. Now in some ways our show today is a continuation of the discussion we had Last month, exactly last month, with Andrew Sather on avoiding the value trap. Now, in that show, we focused on how to avoid investing in public companies that are at risk of filing for bankruptcy. And if you missed it, I suggest listening to it from our archive. During this show, we'll talk more about bankruptcy and specifically what the typical saver investor needs to know about bankruptcy. I've met some people who were 100% certain they'd never be impacted by bankruptcy since they managed their finances well. In reality, they were either delusional or maybe received the tragic news from their doctor that they only had days or weeks to live. The reality is, it's not just our likelihood of filing for a bankruptcy, but as investors, we take risks. And one of those risks that either a client, a borrower, a company we invested in, a vendor, or even a family member, faces bankruptcy. Now in planning who we should have as our guest, the first name that came to mind was Donald Trump, since he has probably filed more bankruptcies than any other person in the U.S. One dilemma, of course, is that he is traveling all around the country generating PR for his presidential campaign. So we asked some other investors and considered the many facets we want to cover of bankruptcy, and we came up with an even better idea. David Knapper, Esquire of Knapper Law in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. His experience with BK is far, and I'll occasionally throw in that abbreviation, I apologize, bankruptcy, is far broader than Donald Trump's. We certainly want to talk about how other parties are affected when a bankruptcy is filed, not just the advantages of erasing your debt. Certainly, if you were an investor in one or more of Donald Trump's projects or companies that filed for bankruptcy, you already know about the investments going bad. At least those investments, you could have others coming up. And let me remind you if you don't gain some new knowledge during this hour, we have a 200% money-back guarantee. Yes, we'll refund double what you paid to listen. Now admittedly, I'm very confident I won't have to pay out any refunds at the end of this show since we have a topic that's important to all current and future investors. That's true regardless of where you are in the world. And whether you invest in companies, stocks, bonds, mutual bonds, mutual, uh, come on, is that right? Mutual, uh, the name doesn't sound quite right. Bank CDs, national debt like U.S. Treasury bills, sovereign debt. You're a landlord, mortgage lender, angel investor, or you invest in venture capital. All of these places have some risk. Now, I'm certain there's at least one or two listeners who just heard me mention bank CDs and U.S. Treasury bills, and they shook their head or might even plan to send an email correcting me. They may think that if a bank or the U.S. government files for bankruptcy, they won't be affected. All contraire. You can assume there could be weeks or months waiting to get your principal and or interest back and then you start to really realize the importance of that second guarantee I often mention with these debt instruments, notice I hesitate to call them investments, the money you get back will be worth less than you initially lent to that financial institution whether it was the government or the bank. Now we have a tradition of using a quote to set the stage for this topic and today I chose one that will make you think I certainly did after hearing it. You ready? Capitalism without bankruptcy is like Christianity without hell. Let me repeat that one. It really is a thought provoker. Capitalism without bankruptcy is like Christianity without hell. This quote is from Frank Borman. He's an American astronaut, if you don't remember him, later CEO of Eastern Airlines for about, I think, 11 years, which you may recall later filed for bankruptcy. And I learned a bit of trivia about Frank Borman. He was born in Gary, Indiana, but due to various sinus problems he had as a kid, his family moved to a better climate, Tucson, Arizona, just a few-hour drive from where our guest and I are now. Today is Monday, August twenty fourth, 2015. It is 9.05 a.m. in Arizona, where our guest is, and uh, 12.05 p.m. on the East Coast, 18.05 in continental Europe. Today is the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one for you. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss some shows or you want to re-listen, you can find them in the archive, wealthdna.us. We list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, if you have a problem finding a show, feel free to contact me, ron at Wealth. DNA.us. A sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area. Now, the U.S. equity markets, which are down, by the way, since the last record high in May, they're down by 7.5% since that high, are off to a very negative start, 2.5% the last time I glanced at it. Uh, it's a little bit less than that, a little under 2%. Asia was down, well, it's actually a bloodbath in Asia. It was down between 45 and 8.5% overnight. Europe just closed down 4.5%, and Brazil is down about 3%. Boy, a tough day. Finally, some of my short positions are making money. The S&P 500 sent us a clear sell signal on July 27th, and it ends down today if it ends down today, I should say, and I think that's pretty certain, the sell signal will be confirmed. I might even stop buying stocks at these sale prices until things calm down. Now, remember, I'm not allowed to tell you where the market is heading next, but I will share these occasional pearls of wisdom. Now, the advantage of joining us for the live show, you get to ask questions or make comments either using the chat window below the radio player or calling in. But if you're listening to the archive, neither of those options will work. Trust me, I've tried. Our guest to discuss Bankruptcy from an investor's perspective is David Knapper Esquire, principal of Knapper Law in Phoenix, Arizona. He specializes in bankruptcy, business law, and commercial litigation. He earned his B.S. from Drake University, cum laude, and his J.D. from the University of Iowa, with honors. I guess a smart guy. David Knapper holds a five-star rating by his peers, a member of past... Uh, a member and a past president, no less, of the Arizona Trustee Association, I had the opportunity to meet him at Azria, the Arizona Real Estate Investors Association, where he was brought in as the expert to educate real estate investors about the perils and opportunities in bankruptcy. He also did some work for re- recently for one of our sponsor, BI Solutions Corp's large investors. Let's give a warm radio welcome to David Knapper. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us and sharing some information on how bankruptcy can affect us as investors.
2: Hey, good morning, Ron. Thank you.
1: And I gave a brief overview of your background, David. How do you introduce yourself at a cocktail party?
2: Um, I would normally say um, a small-town North Iowa farm boy. I grew up in Forest City, Iowa, the home of Winnebago Industries. So for me, a fascinating upbringing. When I was um, five years old, Winnebago started out and uh, we went from a population of about 1,800 people to 4,000 doubled our size of the community in probably five years' time, and it was also a lot of fun watching the Winnebago's coming off of the factory line on a Friday night. They would literally park them on uh, on our main street, and we were the type of community that had two stoplights, one on the north side of town and one on the <laughs> south side, and so I, I saw a lot of, I didn't realize at the time, but a lot of capitalism at its at its ultimate, uh... so growing up in in that community was was just really interesting and i was very fortunate to perceive it uh... my father was a sole proprietor had a string of gas stations in in northern iowa uh... went to college at the university of iowa law school uh... and then uh... out of my class of two hundred amazingly enough ten percent of the class so twenty of us already had jobs lined up down here in phoenix before graduation so i came down to uh... To Arizona in 1985, and then within a few years, when we had the SNL uh, debacle, uh, oh, wow. sure enough, there was a, a lot of people that uh, were doing in in the legal field anyway. A lot of representation for failed lenders, uh, a lot of real estate and and business failures, and so uh, somehow, some way, I'd call it perfect timing, call it terrible timing, but uh, <laughs> my entire experience has always been. Representing uh, lenders and institutional investors and private investors in uh, in dealing with uh, with the problems that they encounter when uh, when their credit when their debtors and their borrowers uh, have financial problems.
1: Boy, I, I didn't realize that's what you got start, got you started on this thing, and, and the whole uh, Iowa contingent came down to Phoenix. It's interesting that evidently there was a lot of demand at that point for uh, for uh, young attorneys. So
2: uh,
1: well, that, that at least got you down to a warmer climate.
2: It sure did, and and what's really been kind of amazing is is now that I've been doing this for 30 years, I've found that oftentimes I'm chasing down the same uh, failed principles of a a new entity that I was chasing down 15, 20 years ago, and they're represented by the same attorneys this second go-around, and we're kind of sitting around like Yogi Berra saying, deja vu all over again, guys, huh? All over
1: again. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to some of the basics of uh, bankruptcy so before we dig into what investors know, need to know about. Is that okay? Sure. All right. Now, I assume when you think of bankruptcy, you always associate it with some entity filing the bankruptcy. But us, for us laymen, bankruptcy can be either personal or a company bankruptcy, correct?
2: It sure can. You you have, uh, for, for most people, and I'm not going to get into because, honestly, I, I don't do much work, in the context of a Chapter 12 bankruptcy, which is for agricultural purposes. Uh, but, but for most folks, when they think of bankruptcy, they're, they're thinking of either a Chapter 7, a Chapter uh, 11, or a Chapter 13 bankruptcy. So I think this morning, we're probably gonna be talking about three different chapters of the bankruptcy code. Um, a, a,
1: we'll definitely stick with the biggies. Sure, we'd confuse everybody, including me, uh, if we tried to cover all of them, but uh, definitely definitely, the top three I want to make sure we cover.
2: Sure. Uh, and, and to begin with, Ron, a, a Chapter 7 and a Chapter 13, I, I think of those as consumer uh, bankruptcies, and in a Chapter 11, I think of it in the context of a business bankruptcy. Um, the okay. reality is, however, Um, anyone uh, can, whether it's an individual or an entity, um, be in a Chapter 11, and an entity as well can be in a Chapter 7, so it really doesn't matter on occasion whether you're an individual or an entity, except for to qualify for a Chapter 13, you're going to need to be an individual, And, and the real difference between these chapters uh, is as follows. If, if I'm gonna file a chapter seven, what I'm doing is is I'm liquidating my assets. I'm, I'm telling the court and my creditors that I, I just simply want out. I will hand over to the bankruptcy court anything that I have um, that I can't protect through an exemption under state or federal law. Uh, so for instance, in chapter seven, if i had um let's say two hundred thousand dollars of equity in my home and uh... under state law and under federal law the maximum homestead exemption i could save in the equity in my home is say a hundred fifty thousand i would i would be turning to the court and saying look i'm perfectly willing to forfeit fifty thousand dollars of equity into the bankruptcy court uh... for purposes of my liquidation because in in four or five months, hopefully, when I get my Chapter 7 discharge, I want to walk away with all of my creditors flushed down the drain. I, I don't want to owe anybody anything. It's it's just a simple, straight Chapter 7 liquidation where I, I can be in and out of the bankruptcy in fairly quick fashion, get rid of all my creditors. Uh, a very simple process, and uh, surprisingly enough, uh, very inexpensive if. Uh, if I'm looking around these days, at least here in uh, in the Phoenix market, there are law firms that are handling Chapter 7s from start to finish for for under $800. Uh, so Chapter 7 consumer, typically liquidation always. Um, if I am a um, individual and I happen to mm-hmm. say be behind on a car payment or a mortgage and i would really like to save the car and or really like to save the the home mm-hmm. but i don't have the means at that precise moment of bringing my loan current i would instead of filing a chapter 7 liquidation avail myself the opportunity to file a chapter 13 reorganization under a chapter 13 reorganization i would have the ability to defer getting caught up on those payments that I missed before filing bankruptcy for between 36 months and 60 months so for instance Ron if I were um, behind on my mortgage say by $10,000 I could file a 13 and I would have up to the next 60 months to get that $10,000 paid now in the meantime I would need to make my mortgage payments going forward in the ordinary course of business but under a 13, again, I've I've bought myself up to five years to get caught up on my mortgage or my car payment, and um, oftentimes the the justification for a 13 is someone has previously suffered a, a financial catastrophe, but now that they are about to file bankruptcy, that that calamity has been cured. For instance, I uh, I fell behind on my car payments or my house payments because of. Uh, I was unemployed, or mm-hmm. I um, fell behind on my house payment and car payments because I was trying to pay some um, unforeseen medical bills. Um, but but in any event, a, a chapter thirteen is a reorganization, and it's normally considered a a consumer reorganization. Okay. And then the last chapter, a chapter eleven, that too is a reorganization. But that would be filed typically by a business or by a more wealthy individual. With a substantial amount of of debt and a substantial amount of income, and under a Chapter 11, unlike a Chapter 13, the time that I would have to get caught up on payments I had missed prior to filing the bankruptcy isn't set in stone by a minimum of 36 months and a maximum of 60 months as set forth in a Chapter 13. It it mm-hmm. could in fact be 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So. Um, wow when i when i like to talk to people about the difference between the chapters i, I always start with chapter 7 consumer liquidation mm-hmm. chapter 11 business reorganization chapter 13 consumer reorganization
1: okay good good uh, good overview I actually covered quite a bit but before we dig into more specifics i got a couple of detailed questions i was want to ask you on on each of these um, share a little bit about how our listeners would contact you and learn more about Canapper Law.
2: Sure. Um, I have a website, although it's usually not um, updated. There's uh, typically mm-hmm. on it my phone number, email address, uh, so on and so forth. Um, I'm also a member, as you mentioned, of the Arizona Trustee Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, all members of the Arizona Trustee Association have their contact information posted as, as part of the, their website. Um, also, Candidly, I think if you do any amount of Googling on the Internet, uh, my name, Phoenix Attorney, you're going to find me six ways to Sunday because one of the, uh, one of the blessings and curses of, of being active uh, in, in bankruptcy, among other things, is your, your name is often posted as part of legal decisions uh, and or other matters, so not, not too hard to find me.
1: Okay. What is your your personal website, though? Let's. Or your company's website. What what is that? Let's get that one out to the listeners.
2: Um, you would you would just simply want to type in among uh, two two for me. Uh, first uh, would be d l k at Second mm-hmm. one would be uh, david dot at azbar.org. Okay.
1: Canapperlaw Okay. Very good. Got that, and we'll make sure that our listeners get that at the end as well. Now, let's, let's uh, stay with the personal for just a second. If I uh, have financial problems and I need to file for bankruptcy, and I'm not, uh, by the way, just, uh, again, hypothetical, just like you being behind your car payments, and my wife and I file a joint tax return, does that mean that both of us have to file bankruptcy, or can we file individually?
2: You know, in Arizona, the quick answer is is either one of you will file, and it will, in fact, be effective for both of you. Uh, in other right. states, I honestly can't say for sure, uh, okay. because the reason why I'm so positive about Arizona and, and wishy-washy on other states is Arizona is a community property state. And mm-hmm. in Arizona, okay. being a community property state, um, we, we have laws that say that one spouse may, may or may not obligate the other spouse to a particular legal action. So, for instance, if, if you and your spouse had problems and, let's say, your, your spouse didn't want to be involved in the bankruptcy, yes, you could file the bankruptcy and you could discharge uh, all of the debts that you and her collectively own together without pulling her into it, the only thing that might be a possible hiccup, however, is is if your wife had any somehow, some way, credit problems unrelated to you. Uh, mm-hmm. For instance, if if she had some sole and separate property uh, that she acquired before the uh, the uh, the marriage, or if she inherited something, and then there were hiccups with her sole and separate, then she'd need to file a bankruptcy too. But generally speaking uh... one spouse bankruptcy will cover both spouses
1: Hmm. Okay, a good good tip. Now, what are the differences? We we talked a little bit about let's say chapter seven and thirteen. Uh, sticking with the individual side as uh, the most predominant, if you will, uh, perspective from the person that is uh, an investor that's affected by those people, whether they were uh, tenants or they were uh, um, they were uh, mortgage holders uh, for for that client, or uh, just happened to uh, lend them some money. Whatever the case might be, uh, the the, it sounds like under Chapter Seven, that investor is going to get more or less wiped out in the process, unless uh, it is their personal property.
2: I would I would say so. I would say that okay. my personal experience is is in a, a Chapter Seven. If if you're a creditor that's owed money by by someone that files bankruptcy, I would say on the norm, Ron, the averages are at least eight to nine times out of ten, you'll get paid nothing. Um, mm-hmm, the only time you'll get paid is if and when you're lucky enough to be notified by the bankruptcy court that there are, in fact, going to be some assets that will be liquidated as part of the bankruptcy and eventually um, the proceeds of those assets liquidated, distributed to the um, Chapter 7 debtors creditors. Um, and as i previously mentioned for for that to ever happen the party filing chapter 7 had to have had some assets that they owned mm-hmm. that they were not entitled to exempt and and by exempt i actually mean protect They're, it means the right. same thing okay. they they have to they have to have something they they have to give up to be entitled to receive the benefits of a discharge under a chapter 7 so for instance um when i'm looking at a chapter 7 debtor schedules and and by the way i don't represent the, the debtor chapter 7s or or even in an 11 or a 13 context i'm always representing the the creditors the the lenders okay. the landlords and so on and so forth but w- when i'm looking at someone's bankruptcy schedules that they had to fill out as part of their bankruptcy in which they disclose hey these are all my assets these are all my mm-hmm. liabilities these are the assets that I'm claiming I'm entitled to exempt or protect and, and so on and so forth, when I'm typically looking at those schedules that get filed upon the initiation of the bankruptcy, I'm seeing such things as credit card debt, I'm seeing uh, automobile loans, I'm seeing uh, past judgments for unpaid uh, medical bills, I'm seeing um, past judgments for uh, evictions uh, by landlords, I'm seeing um, phone bills, student
1: loan debts. Got to be one in there. Student loan debts.
2: You bet. mm. Uh, Just, just a whole array of things, and and that's on the liability side. And on the asset side, I'm usually seeing most people list assets that don't really have any uh, anything that they need to give up. Um, The exemptions are actually fairly, uh, fairly generous. Uh, I've already mentioned one here in Arizona, at least. Yeah, the $150,000 homestead exemption. And uh, these days, unfortunately, there, there aren't really that many people that have over $150,000 of equity in their home. Um, You can have incredibly enough up to six months worth of groceries. Um, You, you can keep you can keep a house worth of furniture so long as your furniture isn't high-end. And typically, even if it's high-end, the court will value it as what that would sell if you put it out on, on the uh, street curb and had to sell it before 5 p.m. today. Mm-hmm. Um, so so usually, Ron, the, the assets that are liquidated, that aren't exempt or protected, are such things as um, a timeshare, uh, a, uh, a boat, a okay. boat uh A second or a third car because you only get to keep one or a car in which there's there's more equity in it than you're allowed to exempt, which uh I believe is uh five thousand to sixty five hundred dollars of equity in in a car um cash if you were silly enough to have uh some cash um but but those kinds of things uh are usually what's what's put up for sale uh as part of a liquidation in the chapter seven and I think you can see that those kinds of assets typically don't generate all that much money when they're sold anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're, you are essentially going to get wiped out unless some of those, those cases apply. But let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealthy Nate Radio Show, you Host uh, is me, that's Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., our real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. Great company to help you diversify your portfolio, which we'll touch on later. If you missed some of the prior shows, including the one last month I mentioned with Andrew Sather, I uh, highly suggest re-listening to those shows, and they are on WealthDNA.us If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows or have trouble finding a past show, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And reminder, during the show, and I haven't been paying any attention at all, listening so carefully, there is a chat window under the radio player you can... Send us a message there with comments or questions, and we will try to respond. There is a call-in number, but I'm going to say we've got such a list of questions for our our, uh, guest today that we probably won't get a chance to uh, cover them. Our topic today is bankruptcy from an investor's perspective. Our guest is David Knapper, principal of Knapper Law in Phoenix, Arizona, specializing in bankruptcy, business law, and commercial litigation. We even found out at the beginning how that all happened. Now, uh, David, there are some parties who handle the legal side of the bankruptcy. We we talked about one explicitly, of course, uh, that that is involved in the bankruptcy. That's a creditor, and there could be a lot of them, and that's who you usually represent. I assume the person filing the uh, bankruptcy is therefore called a debtor, uh, but who are the other parties on the legal side that uh, would likely be involved?
2: In a Chapter 7, Ron, there's two more parties. There is a Chapter 7 trustee and there is the bankruptcy judge. And in a chapter seven, the chapter seven trustee is appointed and he or she typically serves as, I would best describe it as an intermediary between the judge and the creditors and the debtor. Uh, the chapter seven trustee's duties are to examine the, uh, the debtor schedules and the debtor personally and to search out and confirm if the debtor's schedules disclosing his assets and liabilities are in fact correct uh, and complete and for instance in a chapter seven the chapter seven trustee would take a look at the schedules and report to the judge your honor I I see that the debtor listed that they they only have um, their their property that they are living in but it turns Mm -hmm. out that I Kicked the tires and snipped around, and I found that they have a second home up in Prescott, and that second home up in Prescott needs to be sold and liquidated uh, as as part of the bankruptcy estate, and its proceeds dispersed to, to creditors.
1: Okay, and uh, I assume on a Chapter uh, 11. Then there's also a trustee, but they're called a Chapter. Uh, sorry, 13. I'm back to back to personal uh, on the Chapter 13. So there would there be a Chapter 13 trustee as well
2: yes in a chapter thirteen the chapter thirteen trustee instead of uh... serving as a party that collects the assets and and liquidates them the chapter thirteen trustee mm-hmm. essentially serves as the bank the the money that i mentioned earlier okay. that say for instance i needed money ten thousand dollars i was behind on my mortgage before i uh... filed bankruptcy under chapter thirteen bankruptcy the monies that I would be paying through my reorganization would actually go to the Chapter 13 trustee, and the Chapter 13 trustee would then eventually disperse those funds um, to the auto finance company and ultimately to to certain creditors.
1: Okay. Now, how about attorneys? The the person filing the debtor has to have an attorney as to him to file this thing, but after that are they fairly actively involved or is it kind of a one-time get the thing filed?
2: That's a great question. There is absolutely no need to have an attorney if you are a debtor uh, that is going to be filing a Chapter 7. You you can unequivocally do that without the services of an attorney. It's done uh, with success on many occasions. You can similarly, if you're foolish enough as a debtor, attempt to represent yourself in a Chapter 13 But those often fail because it's a more complex bankruptcy there are a lot more wheels in motion Uh, most 13s that are filed by debtors without the services of an attorney are uh, are unsuccessful Um, if you're an individual a wealthy individual that has needs of filing a chapter 11 you could even file it yourself but candidly unless you're a bankruptcy attorney that's fallen upon hard times, you're you're not going to make it. An 11 is even so much more complicated than a Chapter 13. In the context of an entity, legal entities in either a 7, 11, or 13, they may not be represented uh, by the principles of the entity. Only attorneys may appear and represent entities in bankruptcy court. Hmm.
1: Okay. Now, on the creditor side, obviously, where you focused and obviously an attorney for, for some of the creditors, and we'll talk about some of the specifics of when that makes sense, uh, but it sounds like in a Chapter 7, uh, you might want to have somebody take a look at what that uh, uh, filing said, but otherwise, it, it, it doesn't sound like you're going to gain much by having an attorney on a Chapter 7, correct? I couldn't uh, as agree a, as a creditor.
2: more. Yeah. Okay. If, if you're if you're a creditor in our Chapter Seven, you're first of all going to be told by the bankruptcy court, most often, don't do anything. We we can't help you. You are you are very likely going to get flushed. But if you are in fact invited to get involved, typically, your involvement will be nothing other than filing proof of the amount that you're owed, and Supporting that with the documentation that evidences what you're owed, uh, and after that, you literally stand on the sidelines and wait to see if the bankruptcy system, particularly the bankruptcy Chapter 7 trustee, can do anything good to get you paid at least something.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm a creditor, how do I even find out that these this person, this uh, debtor, uh, this person that owes me some money, that's filed for bankruptcy? Uh, they, they're not going to want to contact me, right? Uh, how do I hear about it?
2: you normally are going to hear about it and they normally do want you to know about it because again if they did avail themselves to a chapter seven bankruptcy liquidation they want to flush you they want to ensure that you can never come after them again and the way they ensure that that happens is they will include you in their bankruptcy schedules as someone whom they owe money to Mm -hmm. and upon doing that the bankruptcy system the computer system will generate what's called a master mailing list, and you will automatically be placed on that. The only time you're not notified is if there's some hiccup in the address that's provided for you. But gotcha. normally you're going to receive in the mail actual notification of the bankruptcy if you're a creditor of someone who's filed a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And for that matter, the same rules apply for a, a 13 or an 11. You're, you're going to find out about it. Um, if you do not find out about the bankruptcy, and I'm talking typically within a month of it being filed, mm-hmm. it's more likely than not that for some tactical reason, and typically it's opportunistic, the person who filed bankruptcy did not want you to know about the bankruptcy until the last possible moment. For
1: mm-hmm. instance,
2: I have a number of landlord clients that are not uh, listed by the debtor and the debtor schedules as part of the bankruptcy so they never get mailed notification of the bankruptcy and the only way they find out about the bankruptcy is on the eve of an eviction judgment being entered in state court by a judge to oust them from occupancy of a property they then mm-hmm. suddenly wave in front of the judge and my client the, the bankruptcy paperwork that they filed and um, and then you'll find out about it but you're, you're going to find out typically by by mail and then if you don't find out by mail, you're going to find out when you are squeezing <laughs> to collect something from the debtor. When the debtor unequivocally needs to stop you, um, they, they will let you know. And, and in part, that's because the, the bankruptcy filing, it invokes what's called the automatic stay. And, and what the automatic okay, exp- stay is – Yeah, explain is, that one
1: because that's obviously yeah. one of those weird terms.
2: Uh-huh. What the automatic stay is is it's it's I kind of refer to it. Uh, my best analogy is it's a Teflon curtain that that would fall down in uh, at the very front of a stage, and the debtor is the actor that's up on the stage, and you mm-hmm. as a creditor are sitting down in the audience. Uh, and when the Teflon curtain falls, it separates you from the debtor who's up on the stage you can't get through the curtain. You cannot touch the debtor, you cannot write them, you cannot call them, you cannot email them, you, you cannot have any contact with them because of the bankruptcy automatic stay. The only thing you can do upon the bankruptcy being filed, and this is whether it's a Chapter 7 or 11 or 13 is, you need to proceed through the bankruptcy court system and ask the bankruptcy judge to give you certain relief. So upon a bankruptcy being filed, um, again, that's why you're normally going to find out about it because usually most debtors want you to know that that Teflon curtain has fallen.
1: Okay, and re- relief in this case is from that, uh, that curtain, that automatic stay. So it's, it's, it's a good thing.
2: It's, it's a good thing.
1: Okay, but at least from, from the from the creditor's perspective, of course, is what I'm I'm kind of focusing on. And, yeah,
2: if uh, if you're a if you're a debtor, you you normally know that once that curtain has fallen, um, that's it. You'll never be able to be bothered again by the credit card companies, by the doctors uh, who didn't get paid their medical bills. Um, but but what you will find is attorneys such as myself we'll be asking the judge to raise that curtain if in fact you still have a ongoing car payment, if you still have an ongoing mm-hmm. mortgage, or if you still have an ongoing lease.
1: Okay, so it's go, uh, payments going forward. Let me, let me ask you a specific one because I've, I've run into this where I've had clients notify me in advance or just about the time they're filing for the bankruptcy. They are filing, and that they intended to stay in a property, and I'm talking obviously in a, in a landlord situation or in uh, owner financing type of situation. Uh, if they contact me and request kind of what's due and what the payments are, the current ones, those kinds of things, I assume at that point I can talk to them. It's not like uh, I'm violating the stay if they contacted me, correct?
2: You can, but you need to be so very careful because um, obviously you're you're not. You're not trying to burst through that curtain by being a decent human being and answering someone's questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the problem you've got is is once you're communicating with the debtor, if the debtor should suddenly change his or her story and say that in the course of that conversation, you started saying here's what you owe, and by the mm-hmm. way, if you don't pay it, bad things will happen to you. Then all of a sudden, you're you're caught. Um, you're caught with the debtor saying, "This went beyond the the creditor merely telling me, uh, answering my question about what I owed. This was a creditor that was harassing me in violation of the automatic stay."
1: Okay, so you need now, to be we just careful. Touched- yeah, I understand. So I, it, it sounds like I was probably more lucky than anything else in those situations where these these, these uh, uh, folks really re- recognized I was there to help them uh, own a property, to stay in the property, whatever, so we didn't run the problem. So it sounds like uh, you know, it would have been easy to cross that line. But while we're on that, I mean, we've talked a little bit here about landlords, and, and uh, we I, I mentioned uh, if you're a mortgage holder on that property. Uh, tell us a little bit about those two types of investors what advice do you have what and let me start with the landlord side what advice or tips do you have for the landlord when they find out uh, that the uh, tenant is in bankruptcy
2: the first thing I would tell the landlord if their tenant has filed bankruptcy is stop whatever you're doing Uh, again the Mm -hmm. automatic stay has fallen the Teflon curtain prevents you from from doing anything against this tenant uh, again, don't call them, don't write them, don't email them. For heaven's sakes, don't go knocking on their door and ask to speak to them. You want to go through the bankruptcy court or you will be sued. And here in Arizona, the typical um, person that does violate the stay by uh, by contacting uh, a, a tenant that's in bankruptcy, knowing of that bankruptcy, will be sued for a minimum of $5,000 plus legal fees. So it's, it's a very serious offense. So after I've gotten my, my landlord um, convinced to, to, to sit and, and, and behave himself, mm-hmm. I would then turn to the landlord and say, um, you need to file what is called a motion to lift the automatic stay. You need to ask the judge to raise that Teflon curtain that has fallen and allow you to proceed in state court to exercise your landlord's rights um, and we all know that that's by proceeding with an eviction action and mm-hmm. i would turn to the landlord and say the the tenant uh... very well may still have the ability to uh... wipe out all of the rents that that you're owed um, that's what a chapter seven debtor does they flush their creditors mm-hmm. but In in a bankruptcy context, in a Chapter 7, I would be telling my landlord client that you will either get paid the rent that accrues following the bankruptcy or you will get the automatic stay lifted and given permission to complete an eviction in state court. It is only a question of time before one of those two things happens. You're either going to get paid or you're going to get the right to evict. But you have to get the bankruptcy judge's permission to do so.
1: Okay. Now, let's say I hold a mortgage on the property. I've sold the property to this person who files for a bankruptcy. Uh, what would be your advice to me in that case? Uh, I assume stop yeah. everything in terms of the contact again would apply.
2: Yeah. The, the the first thing that I would I would tell you is I I wish you were a landlord instead of a mortgage lender. The mm-hmm. the the law and the the bankruptcy legal system is actually far more protective to. To landlords and than, than, than mortgage lenders. in in a landlord context, like I said before, it's pretty simple. You, you, you're probably not going to get anywhere by complaining about the rents that accrued before the bankruptcy. The, the bankruptcy judges right. really aren't interested in that. They're figuring that's going to get flushed as part of the bankruptcy. but in in the context of of a mortgage, we all know that sooner or later you you need to be paid the mortgage payments that previously accrued. However, If you're uh, uh, the holder of a mortgage in a a bankruptcy, one of the things you always have is a a judge is, is not very keen on you as a mortgage lender foreclosing if you're somehow seen as opportunistically attempting to steal the equity that the person who has filed bankruptcy has in their property. And so, for instance, I have had cases where, Um, someone has filed a bankruptcy on on behalf of my client as a mortgage lender and payments weren't made before the bankruptcy and then the mortgage payments that have accrued since the bankruptcy haven't been paid either and I've asked the bankruptcy judge to lift the automatic stay to allow my client to complete a foreclosure And, and the judge still would not allow that to happen because the judge has told me Mr. Knapper your client is more than adequately protected here there there is equity in this property over and above the mortgage your client is going to get paid you need to turn to your client and tell your client to sit down and shut up and be patient eventually your client's going to get paid i'm in no rush to help your client conversely wow. in the context of a yes in in the context of a lease i never hear that because the, the landlord, uh, well, first of all, the tenant doesn't have any equity in anything. The tenant is leasing right. it. So uh, to make a long story short, Ron, the, the representation of a, of, of a landlord in a, in a bankruptcy oftentimes is far easier and less expensive than the representation of a mortgage, mortgage lender.
1: Wow, I'm seeing some paradoxes in in this whole thing. But uh, let me let me ask one specific on that. If I am the mortgage holder, does it make a difference if it's owner occupied or investment property that that uh, uh, debtor has?
2: Boy, it makes a huge difference. Um, okay. If 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 you made a loan, and this is whether you were um, you were the a third-party lender that made a loan to help someone finance their purchase of the property <laughs> from <laughs> from an entirely different party. Or if you're a former owner of the property that sold the property and extended seller carryback financing, in right. either of those contexts, you're, you're a mortgage holder. You made the loan to someone that's, that that owns a piece of real estate. If that piece of real estate is a residence, and if your borrower is an individual, okay. Mm-hmm. So okay.
1: again, the context is individual.
2: Yep. Owner-occupied individual you are so much better off as the mortgage holder than if your borrower is an entity or if your borrower is dealing with a property that is not their principal residence. Okay, you with me so far? Yep,
1: so yep, I sure if, if okay. So it's,
2: if it's a borrower's principal place of residence and they're an individual, the key here is you're so much better off as having their mortgage because under the bankruptcy laws, they will not be given the opportunity in a Chapter 7 or a Chapter 13 to, um, to, to change your interest rate, to change um, typically the uh, loan maturity date, to cheat you out of default rate interest, to cheat you out of late charges, uh, to deny you, your legal expenses, Um, candidly, those mortgage holders whose borrowers file bankruptcy and whose collateral are primary residences, they're going to come out of a bankruptcy in great shape. They're the kind of clients I love to have.
1: Okay. Uh, much, much, um, uh, again, a little bit of a paradox here. You mentioned one of the things, don't contact the, uh, in, in both those situations, not to contact the, uh, the client or the debtor. Uh, you would contact through the, the, uh, the court. Now, is that through the trustee? I mean, who is my contact person? I mean, obviously, it's probably easier through an attorney, but if I weren't using an attorney, is it the trustee I'm trying to contact, or is the you- actual judge?
2: You can always contact the trustee, Ron, but I would want to go to the judge. I would want to file pleadings. And that's because ultimately the only individual's decision that matters here is the judge, ultimately. And so you're going to want to file pleadings with the judge asking the judge for appropriate relief. Um, Sometimes that relief is to lift the automatic stay, to raise that Teflon curtain. Other times it's just simply judge. Um, I'd like you to dismiss the case because this person has previously been in bankruptcy and they don't qualify. Other times, it's judge. I I, I need you to to set a quick hearing uh, on something just because we're kind of in a legal no man's land and we need to know, you know, where we stand. Um, what what people I think don't realize, Ron, is uh, the bankruptcy court even though. I think it's far more favorable to debtors than to creditors. It really is a court of kindness. And by that I mean that the bankruptcy courts, they they do want to help everyone that's part of the bankruptcy process. Um, Incredibly enough, we we only have eight full-time judges here in Arizona um handling in a bad year between those eight judges 30,000 bankruptcy cases get filed each year. Wow. And wow. you can imagine that that most cases a lot of them don't get wrapped up within one year. So, you know, you're dealing with a judge that's handling thousands of cases and because of that, he or she has, has pretty much learned the tricks of the trade as far as problems do come up and people do need the opportunity to talk to me and get my guidance on what they can and can't do. And so if if you're a, a, a creditor in a bankruptcy and you do want the opportunity to talk to a judge, you're probably gonna get it. And the only the only bad thing I can tell you is, is because of the sheer volume of the caseload of the judge, it, it may take some time to get the judge's ear. But okay, but so you can't schedule
1: for two thousand
2: eighteen or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Typically I I can <laughs> Typically, I can tell you that, that I, I can get in front of a judge on a non-emergency matter uh, by requesting it, but typically I can tell you it's, it's usually a minimum of, of three weeks, and sometimes it takes, you know, six weeks to, to go see the judge.
1: Okay. Before... Um... Uh, I forget here, uh, I'm getting so involved in this thing, we should uh, remind our listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to the WealthDNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, you can listen listen on our archive, and that archive is WealthDNA.us. Today, our guest is David Knapper Esquire. Our topic is bankruptcy from an investor's perspective, which is also one of our guest's professional specialties. Now, uh, David, we didn't talk at all about uh, very little on on the commercial side of things. And as you mentioned, Chapter 7 and 11 are the most common there. Um, What are the main differences from a a, a creditor's perspective? Is it, again, in Chapter 7 I'm likely to get wiped out uh, pretty much uh, totally unless the company has something like we did in the personal case? And in, in Chapter 11 it's going to be a long process and we'll have to wait and see?
2: Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I can also tell you, in a Chapter 11, the, the chances are very, very good that you're going to get the same zero to one penny on the dollar as you would in a Chapter 7 if you're an unsecured creditor, okay? And let, okay. let's talk about that because that, that's what's really, Important I think, difference. a key. Yeah, if, if you're a secured creditor, if you had a borrower that pledged you collateral, and you properly perfected it in accordance with state law, you are so much better off when your borrower files a bankruptcy than if you're an unsecured creditor. So, for instance, if you made a mortgage, uh, you're in great shape. You're a secured creditor. But if you were, say, the, uh, the yard man or the doctor that provided uh, medical services or the credit card company that provided uh, consumer financing, you're, you're an unsecured creditor, and Ron unfortunately, you know regardless of the chapter that the of the bankruptcy that the debtor has availed themselves to you you are pretty much flying naked you You have no protections whatsoever and And by that, what I mean is remember under chapter seven you're 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 probably just flush no matter what unless your debtors have some non-exempt assets. And even then, you'll only get paid a few pennies on the dollar. In a Chapter 13 and a Chapter 11, both of those are, are reorganizations, you have what's called the liquidation test, or you have what's called the best interest of creditors test. And okay. and those mean the same thing. Um, and I'm going to go with best interest of creditors. Okay. The best interest of creditors test has to be passed by either – Uh, a Chapter 11 debtor, or a Chapter 13. They both need to pass the test to complete a successful bankruptcy. What that test means is they have to show that the amount of money that they will be paying to their unsecured creditors will be a penny more than it would be if they availed themselves to a Chapter 7 liquidation. Let me give you an example of what that means. Under a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, if I have $1 million worth of assets and um, I have, um, um, uh, let's say, a $750,000 mortgage and I want to reorganize the mortgage, if if I don't have any non-exempt assets uh, to disperse under a Chapter 7, I only need to pay my unsecured creditors a penny because, again, they'll be getting paid a penny more than if I filed a Chapter 7. So hmm. under a Chapter 11, um, if you're an unsecured creditor, the chances are you're going to get paid very little to nothing. Okay. And the same analogy would, would fall true for a Chapter 13. again, To pass the test of of best interest of creditors, they just have to pay you a penny more than if they were filing a Chapter 7. So let me cut to the quick. In bankruptcy, secured creditors typically get paid. Unsecured creditors don't.
1: Okay, and let's make sure we clarify. so let's let's since we'll be limited on time, let's focus on kind of the most common thing that investors are are uh, touched by, and that's a publicly traded company. They're either a stockholder or a bondholder. Uh, some people will hear, hear the term secured creditor and say, "Well, wait a minute, I have a I own stock in this company. That's a security, so therefore I'm a secured creditor." That's not the security we're talking about. Correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. When when you're an investor, when you're a a shareholder in a company and the company files bankruptcy, you're not going to get paid anything from the bankruptcy court. No how, no way. You're going to hopefully ride things out and see if the company successfully avails itself to a reorganization. If it does, uh, maybe your stock someday will be worth something. But in the meantime, all you can do is is hold your breath and hope.
1: Okay, and in those cases, then it sounds like it doesn't make a lot of sense to hire a, a bankruptcy attorney to represent at me as a creditor if I own, you know, ten or twenty, thirty thousand dollars of stock or bonds in that company. Correct?
2: Correct. I, I could not see any interest in that, especially if you're a um, if you're an outside investor. Uh, maybe perhaps if you're uh, one of the principals, um, but no. If if you were just sure. a simple third party. And, and you bought stock in uh, in Apple uh, a year ago, and heaven forbid Apple ends up in a Chapter 11 tomorrow, you, you have no reason to hire an attorney.
1: Okay, very good. Now, so it sounds like, and that's going to be true, of course, of municipalities or countries that might file for bankruptcy. So what we're really saying is creditors in those cases are at the mercy of the big lawyers who are filing and handling that bankruptcy of the of the big company, and uh, they're they're deciding how much will be left for us little guys. Correct. All right. So so being one of those uh, 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 large attorneys might be the only place you make money on those things. All right.
2: Yeah, uh, be- yeah. The lawyers always get paid.
1: <laughs> before I forget, and uh, before we close for sure, I want to make sure we remind our listeners how do they contact you? You mentioned one of the things if, they, of course, they, they uh, uh, Google or Yahoo or Bing you or whatever uh, search engine somebody uses, they will find you as, as David Knapper. But what was the the uh, website for Knapper Law again?
2: Sure, DLK at Okay. and
1: All
2: right. David David at AZBar.org.
1: Okay, yep, so obviously a member of the uh, Bar Association, they haven't, they haven't kicked you out, you do good work. Uh, now, we've covered a lot of aspects, not, not nearly as many as I would love to cover, and it sounds like we're going to have to have a second show to, to cover more. Uh, but are there some aspects of bankruptcy from the investor's perspective, again, me or you as, as investing in various uh, investments, companies, whatever, uh, that you'd like to emphasize or, um, or maybe add that we forgot to cover?
2: Sure. Uh, again, I'd like to emphasize the automatic stay. If if your if your borrower files uh, bankruptcy, don't do anything. Go through the bankruptcy court. Don't bother your debtor, or you will be sued, and you will be cutting a, a substantial check. Um, the next thing I'd like to point out is the sooner you can get involved in the bankruptcy, if you are a mortgage holder or a landlord or an auto financer, someone that has an ongoing relationship uh, with the uh, the debtor. And that would include, for instance, if you, uh, say, uh, grew flowers and you were the vendor that delivered flowers to the grocery store chain that files bankruptcy. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you've got an ongoing relationship with someone that's filed bankruptcy, y- you want to lawyer up as quickly as you can. Uh, you want to file your pleadings uh, in uh, in the bankruptcy asking the judge for appropriate permission to enforce your state court rights if, if you're not going to be paid. Uh, again, with, with there being so many cases uh, that each bankruptcy judge handles, uh, and again with a taking because of so many cases, the judge's calendars being so full, the, the sooner you file your pleadings with the judge requesting appropriate relief, the sooner we can to the best analogy I can give you is: the sooner we can stop the bleeding, as an investor, it's really important that that you jump on it. Be be reactive, be proactive versus reactive if you can.
1: Well said. Okay, we've covered a lot of the basics as I mentioned. Uh, would you be willing to to join us again? Maybe cover some of the war stories around these various situations, and uh, because I think that's what makes things uh, understandable. Would you be willing to join us again? Absolutely. All right, we're going to get it on your calendar for sure. Appreciate that, David. Thanks for being with us.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you, Ron.
1: All right. Good, look forward to seeing you in the near future. And in the way of a summary, we've covered a lot of good information, insights, and despite the fact that I've been affected by many bankruptcies, I still feel like I know very little about the whole process I'm way ahead of where I was an hour ago. And certainly we couldn't cover every aspect of bankruptcy in just one hour. Uh, So as I just mentioned, we're going to try to get David back later this year to dig in a little deeper and maybe share some of those war stories that really make this stuff sink in. And I I enjoyed today's show just because I have been affected. Uh, Some of you that have not yet hopefully got to understand that there are situations where you may be, and uh, I think you'll look forward to hearing more of that detail. Again, those war stories is really what makes it uh, make sense. So, If you happen to spend some time uh, with somebody that you just can't seem to find something to talk about with them, consider asking them about the quote quote for Frank Borman, capitalism without bankruptcy is like Christianity without hell. There's something to start a conversation. Now, as David covered some of the situations, I realized that besides what appears to be some confusing terminology related to bankruptcy, uh, like lifting a stale or relief of an automatic stay, which sounds like, you know, good news for the debtor is actually good news for the creditor. uh, I also found a number of paradoxes. And and, and so as we're going through the show and I started to see these, I I had to quickly grab a definition of paradox and make sure that I'm on the right track. Here's a definition. A statement or proposition that despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. Now, in general, most of us hope we'll never have to hire a bankruptcy attorney to represent us as a creditor, or even worse, to represent us as a debtor filing a bankruptcy excuse me, petition. And yet, in situations where we don't need to hire a bankruptcy attorney, we may end up being far worse off than in situations where we do. Let me just share a couple examples. First one is what we just talked about. You own stock in a publicly traded company, ultimately files for bankruptcy. Since you're a relatively small, unsecured, forget the word security, but an unsecured stake in that company, we don't need to hire a bankruptcy attorney. But as we discussed, it probably makes sense uh, it and it probably doesn't even make sense to so, so you don't need to and it probably doesn't make sense uh, he couldn't think of a reason why you would the final outcome we'd likely lose 100 percent of our investment so the good news we didn't have to fire hire a bankruptcy attorney we didn't have to fire him so we didn't hire him but the bad news we lost our entire investment okay you say that's one example so there's you know it's a big deal that's not much of a of paradox let's go one step deeper Let's say you're more conservative than stock investors and you invest in bonds instead in that same publicly traded company. Now, I avoided the term you bought bonds since bonds are not an ownership instrument. We're merely lenders to that company. And again, even if our stake is relatively large for our portfolio, it's likely a very small portion of the total bonds issued by that company or city or country and it's usually an unsecured stake. You think, well, bondholders are more secure. Well, they're more likely to get something. But again, it doesn't make sense to hire a bankruptcy attorney. So that's the good news. But in the end, we'll either lose everything and we'll never get the uh, past dividends that we didn't get. Uh, and in best case, we're going to end up with maybe newly issued shares of the company when it exits bankruptcy. So, the good news is we didn't hire a bankruptcy attorney. Bad news, we lost our dividends, fixed income investment, and we end up with an equity stake, a riskier investment that may not appreciate over time. Let's go to a third example. This is the one that really struck me. Being a conservative real estate investor who wants to avoid the five T's of, uh, of what a landlord faces, and we've covered those in past shows, you decide not to rent the property out, but to offer financing to the buyer. And since you're very conservative, you insist on selling that investment property with a large down payment, so the loan to value is low. The common wisdom is the lower the LTV, the lower the risk, since it's likely we'll never have to foreclose, since they have skin in the game, you've heard that term. But what happens if the new owner files for bankruptcy? Now, there's a lot of variables to determine that final outcome, but because they have substantial equity in the property, the BK trustee will want to keep that property as an asset of the BK estate. And it's actually called an estate. We didn't talk about that today, but it it creates an estate when you file for a a bankruptcy. So the good news, the buyer was unlikely to fault, but the bad news is we need to hire a bankruptcy attorney to help us get the property out of the estate. And as long as it's wrapped up in that estate, were powerless to do anything. And here's the big paradox. Had we allowed them to buy the property with a lower down payment, the trustee would almost certainly lift the automatic stay, or the judge would ultimately, and not spend time on the property that won't contribute toward paying off the creditors. In other words, what appeared to be a riskier loan giving them less down or taking less down payment would be easier to deal with and less risky in the case of a bankruptcy. These are the types of things I'd like to bring David back on and talk about. It gives you an idea of how many strange things happen, kind of get reversed on their head. Again, uh, lending is, is riskier in the case of bankruptcy than rental whereas rental is clearly a uh, much more variable, riskier investment per se because you you don't have steady cash flows and the people are not committed to that property. So regular listeners uh, of the Vault DNA Radio Show already know our objective is to help 1 million people become millionaires. I'm confident some of the information we talked about today will be extremely helpful in your journey to become one of those millionaires. And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth, tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas and some insights uh, related to topics you may never have thought you'd have to deal with, like bankruptcy. Many thanks to B i Solutions Corp for sponsoring today's show. They're a real estate investment fund in the and it's residential specifically, Phoenix Scottsdale area. Well the next Wealth DNA radio show, which I'm sure you'll want to listen to, is the second Monday of September, Monday, september fourteenth. My God, it's fall coming up. Nine o'clock Arizona time, same place, same time. Our guest will be Laura Deegan, she's a director with RM Stark. We'll be talking about a very large asset class that you likely invest in bonds. Interest rates in the U.S. have declined, and I'd say almost steadily for the last 35 years. So what happens to the bonds in your portfolio when interest rates begin to rise? You may have started to see some of that in recent statements. And there's no doubt interest rates will rise. The only questions are when and how much. As usual, we provide the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us. Well, there you'll find the archive of past shows as well. If you have some comments, suggestions, questions, or you want me to send you an email reminder uh, before each show and keep you posted about future shows and events, send an email, ron at WealthDNA.us. Happy investing and avoiding bankruptcy filings.
0: You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com.